0: Well, good morning and welcome to church, especially if you're new and visiting. My name's Brendan, one of the pastors here. Uh, If you're here and visiting us because of our... Uh, SG Kids Club, a warm, a special welcome to you. And man, I got the privilege of looking in on this kids club this week, and it was awesome. It was so good coming in here with a jumping mattress, lights going, and our leaders who tirelessly served behind the scenes hundreds of hours to pull it off. And so I just want to pause as we begin to just, just thank those guys. So if you're in this room, I know there's others that are outside, but if you're in this room and you serve to make uh, kids club happen, whether it was helping with groups or craft or setting things up or packing things down or whatever it might have been. Could you just stand up for a moment uh, in this room? We we, we want to thank you. Uh, kids, please, can you stand up? Yeah, well done, guys. Man, to be in kindy again would have been awesome to be a part this week. So good. Well, we're going to read a section from one of the biographies of Jesus' life uh, to begin uh, our time together this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, open it up to Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. It's going to be up on the screen. Matthew chapter 18, uh, verse 21. Uh, this is the word of God to us this morning, church. Matthew 18:21, And I'm going to read this and then pray for us as we begin. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Would you join with me in praying? Dear God, we thank you this morning for the privilege of being part of church family. And we thank you for the privilege of hearing your word. Lord God, we pray that as we spend some time considering your words, you would open our eyes and our hearts to see you more clearly and to love you more dearly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I was to ask you, what is your greatest need? What would you say? You know, with inflation taking off, with interest rates uh, at their highest in more than 10 years, maybe you would answer money, more money. And Maybe because of the housing situation, uh, the rental crisis with rent skyrocketing, Maybe you would say your greatest need is for a foot in the housing market, uh, to get the renos done. It's something to do with housing. Maybe for you, your greatest need is about loneliness, uh, for a relationship, to be married, for a new marriage even, for more friendships. Maybe it's environmental. Maybe it's to get off the grid, to go carbon neutral, to to buy a Tesla. Maybe it's more about leisure. That European holiday uh, in the the summer in Europe or to travel up the coast uh, for a ski holiday or something like that. Maybe it's relational. Just a little bit of respect is what you need from your children from your spouse, from your colleagues at work. Maybe it's more about career. You need a change or to get satisfaction from your job or a new boss. Well, here's a need that's highly unlikely to make it to the top of your list. And that is the need to be forgiven. It's true that there might be some here that are deeply aware of their personal feeling, uh, failings and feel that need to be forgiven. Maybe there's some people here who uh, have struggles in their marriage with perhaps unfaithfulness and you feel deeply hurt. Maybe as a friend you've deeply betray- betrayed someone and, and you feel that need. Maybe as a parent you've, you've caused hurt to your children or maybe that's just something more in general that you've done that's so bad that you struggle to admit it to yourself and you think, how could I ever be forgiven? Maybe. Uh, if that's you today, we're going to be sharing a message that has great hope for you. But that's not most of us. No, that's not most of us at all. That's not how we intuitively think about ourselves in this neighborhood, is it? You know, we believe ourselves to be good people. We're by and large conservative. We, we've gone to the right schools. We're hardworking, law abiding. We're tax paying. We're fiscally responsible. We're usually carbon neutral, globally minded, occasionally volunteering, generous, good citizens. Need to be forgiven? Well, forgiven for what? Forgiven by whom? More than that, increasingly in our culture, forgiveness is something that's viewed as morally wrong. Uh, forgiveness, it's said, perpetuates abuse. It stops abusers from being held to account. Uh, abu- uh, forgiveness, it's said, is to, to be about gaslighting victims, blaming them for the crime of failing to forgive. Uh, It it, it looks to many like a weak response to injustice and hurt. It's better to call them out. It's better to cancel perpetrators uh, of wrong than to forgive. And the result is that it's increasingly common to hear things said like this, we will never forget and we will never forgive. Uh, Even more than that, seeking forgiveness, it's just plain difficult. I was reflecting on this week, you know, I got a little bit angry with Uh, One of my little boys, uh, he's about two years old, or uh, just a little bit over that, and uh, I realized, you know, I need to say I'm sorry for doing something wrong, so I kind of went in there to say, you know, Daddy's uh, just, uh, well, Daddy's just, when he was, uh, uh, it feels so tough to say it, Um, and then you say, well, you forgive Daddy, what I did was wrong, I I shouldn't have been angry at you, it's okay, Daddy, you know, so sweet, but it's hard even for little children. How can you say that our greatest need is to be forgiven? It doesn't make sense. It seems difficult. It seems wrong. It seems unnecessary. Well, that's what this message is all about. If you're taking notes uh, this morning, I've entitled it The Forgotten Need, and I've got really three points for this morning, but one real aim, and that is I want to convince you this morning. I want to convince you that forgiveness really is at the heart of our deepest needs. So let's dive right into the passage this morning with point number one: the limits of forgiveness. Well, as we start looking at this passage, it's probably worth with uh, starting with something of a definition. What even is forgiveness? Uh, the basic idea of the most common word used in the Bible in the New Testament is to dismiss or to release. A wrong is incurred, a price should be paid, but I embrace the cost and release you from paying for it. And that cost could be emotional, it could be physical, it could be financial, it could be reputational, it could be relational. I embrace the cost and release you from paying it. You know, if I lend you my car, my new car, and you drive into a pole and ride it off, but you're not covered under the policy, and you come to me and you say, Brennan, I can't afford to pay for it. I can't afford to replace it. And you plead with me to forgive you, If I forgive you, the cost of my car, doesn't disappear. I'm choosing to pay it instead of you. See, forgiveness, it's a a kind of voluntary suffering. I I choose to embrace the pain instead of you embracing it. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way in his wonderful book called Forgive. He puts it this way. He says, to forgive then is first to name the trespass truthfully as wrong and punishable rather than merely excusing it. Second, it's to identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner rather than thinking how different from you he or she is. It is to will their good. Third, it is to release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt oneself rather than seeking revenge and paying them back. And finally, it is to aim for reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship forever. If you omit any one of these four actions, you are not engaging in real forgiveness. I love that. Naming what has happened as being wrong. Identifying with that person. Releasing them from the debt and aiming where it's possible to be reconciled. See, the obvious question any discussion of forgiveness raises is, but how far is too far? What are the limits of forgiveness? See, you won't be able to live long in our neighborhood without having to extend some forgiveness. I mean, just one, straight off about one easy example of where it will be required in this neighborhood is driving on weekends in Hornsby. I mean, if you've ever driven on weekends in Hornsby, you realize there's a lot of people that obviously don't drive during the week who do drive on the weekends. And you'll find yourself pretty quickly stuck behind someone, some, some poor person, uh, doing 15Ks an hour in a 60 zone, and uh, you're going to need to plaster up a whole bunch of forgiveness in that moment. Turning right without indicating, uh, coming out, pulling out straight from the curve with no warning, Uh, But that's a trivial example. There are serious examples. It's a matter of time before someone in life seriously wrongs you. And so how many times should you forgive? And this is exactly the question that Peter wants to ask Jesus in our passage. What are the limits? Read with me verse 21 of our passage. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Is it as many as seven times? See, Peter is one of Jesus' closest disciples and he's got a reputation as being a bit of a strong personality and he's quick to jump in with his opinions. And he comes to Jesus with a question. To his credit, he comes having understood that forgiveness is important. And so he asks Jesus seven times. You know, seven times the limit of how many times I should forgive. And when you stop and think about it, that's actually pretty generous, isn't it? Imagine with me a close friend sinning against you seven times. It's quite a lot. Uh, that close friend, uh, first of all, they steal something that you love. And then they come back and they apologize for it. They admit to it. And then they go away and then they lie to your face. And they come back and they apologize for it. And then they go away and they slander you publicly. And they come back and apologize for it. And they destroy a prized possession. And they come back and they apologize for it. And then they severely judge your intentions. They come back and apologize for it. That's only Five. Seven times, seven rounds. Surely that's enough. Surely anything beyond that would be unreasonable, right? But look what Jesus says, verse 22. He says this. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now Jesus' reply is not seven times, 77 times. Some translations will even say seven times 70. The point is not the number, Uh, Seven in Jewish thinking represents completion. Jesus is, in essence, saying forgiveness should be limitless. Now, don't miss how radical it is what Jesus is saying here. No matter how many times you are wronged, you should continue to forgive. Jesus is saying there should be no limits whatsoever to our forgiveness. Wow, just, just think with it. How is that reasonable? Isn't that a recipe for exploitation? Isn't that unjust? Surely someone who repeatedly wrongs you doesn't deserve your forgiveness. Now, note it's worth saying Jesus is not advocating for inviting someone to wrong you. That would be to encourage someone to sin. But he's saying we should forgive without any list of wrongs. It should be limitless. And that's point number one, the limits of forgiveness. Not just point number one, a second point this morning is not just the limits of forgiveness, but the heart of forgiveness. See, to understand how this is even possible, we have to return to Jesus. And I kind of think you should imagine like the disciples gathered around, listening to him as he tells them a story. Uh, Jesus tells this story, this parable about a king with a servant, Who's seriously indebted to him? Verse 24 says, A servant was brought to him who had a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, uh, we don't deal with talents anymore, it doesn't mean that anymore. But at this time, a talent was the largest monetary unit possible. A talent was valued at 20 years' wages for a laborer. So think with me average or median uh, salary here in Australia is $65,000. That's the median Aussie wage. 20 years of $65,000 is $1.3 million. That's one talent. This man had a debt to this king of 10,000 talents. Do the maths. That is $13 billion. It's huge. How could this servant be so incredibly indebted to this king? It seems crazy. It's, It's a massive debt. Well, it kind of implies this, this person had some sort of significant role, significant responsibility, a great trust placed in them. Uh, it also perhaps implies extreme negligence or corruption that would allow this to accrue. The debt is so huge, it's impossible to repay. The average uh, weekly you know, earner on the, just the, the average income uh, here in Australia, 65K, would take 10,000 times 20 years. That's 200,000 years to repay this debt. And in verse 25, the king instructs the man, his family, all to his name, to be sold into slavery. That was a kind of common punishment at the time for those who could not repay a debt. And in verse 26, the man with a debt, he, he comes to the king and he, he begs. He says, have patience with me and I will repay to you everything. Now notice it doesn't say the king was convinced by the man's appeal that he could repay. Rather, it says it was out of pity he released him and forgave. That word that means it was, he, was, he was moved with compassion for this man. And it's an amazing act of generosity from this king to personally absorb a debt this big. Well, here's the question. Was this servant transformed with thankfulness for the amazing kindness of having his $13 billion debt relieved, of escaping a life of slavery? Well, we find out that he immediately leaves the king's presence and finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a debt of 100 hundred denarii. Now, a denarii was about a day's wage for a laborer. So 100 denarii is about 20 weeks' wages, which is about $24,000 in today's money. Now, it's worth noticing, 24K, that's not insignificant. That's a pretty significant debt. It's quite a bit. But it is absolutely minuscule, minuscule when compared with the huge $13 billion debt this servant was forgiven. It's the difference between 20 weeks of work and 200,000 years of work. And there is absolutely no sign the forgiven servant has been transformed by this king's generosity towards him. Verse 28, he finds that the servant, this servant, and he grabs him by the neck to choke him. And he demands that he repay the debt. And verse 29, in this scene, what we witness is an almost exact replay of the servant's encounter with the king. The fellow servant, he falls to his knees and he pleads Have mercy on me. I will repay. And in verse 30, the forgiven servant refuses and he throws him into prison. Okay, cool story, Jesus. What does it mean? Jesus is telling this story to explain why his disciples must forgive without limit. And in the parable, the characters are clear. The king represents God. The servant who appeals to the king is a disciple of Jesus who comes to God seeking forgiveness. And the fellow servant is a person who sins against a disciple of Jesus. But there's an immediate objection we intuitively feel at this point. How could we possibly have this degree of indebtedness towards God? We've just been saying that in this neighborhood, people are good. People are law-abiding people. We're conservative. We go to the right schools. We're hardworking. We're law-abiding. We're taxpaying. We're fiscally responsible, carbon neutral, globally minded, occasionally volunteering, good citizens. To everyone in this room, you could also add going to church as well, church attending. How can we possibly be indebted to God to that degree? Well, to understand this, we actually need to understand something about who God is, specifically. See, the Bible teaches that God is a father who loves his son through the Holy Spirit. He's a loving relationship. And the Bible teaches that the same God is infinitely glorious. He's all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-good. And that God created everything that exists in the world out of nothing by His Word. And the Bible teaches that God created humanity as the pinnacle of all He'd made in a unique purpose, with a unique position. As a Father, He made us in His own likeness to have a relationship with Him, to know Him and love Him and enjoy Him, represent Him and serve Him. See, God is the one to whom we owe our lives, who made us and sustains us, who made us to know and love Him. We were made to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength. And yet we all know we don't live this way at all. Any odd honest self-examination reveals that we've all failed to live according to this purpose, to love God as we should. We have wronged God. But here's the point. Wronging God is different from wronging the environment, or wronging an animal, or even wronging any other person. The reason being that God is far greater than any human being. And let me give you an illustration. Imagine yourself walking past a park bench, and on this park bench you see a man seated at the park bench holding a butterfly in his hands. And the man grabs the wings of the butterfly and he pulls them off. You look at that and you think that's a bit strange, it's a bit cruel. But you probably wouldn't say anything, you'd walk on by. Imagine the same scenario walking past a man sitting on a park bench, and in his hands he holds a tiny little bird. And he grasps its wings and pulls them off. Now, at this point, you'd be a bit freaked out by what this man is doing, and you'd probably scurry on by and try and avoid this person. Now, imagine this man sitting on a park bench, and in his hands he holds a puppy. And he starts pulling at the legs of the puppy. You might intervene at that point uh, because such is the cruelty to this animal and do something about it. Now imagine this man sitting at the park bench and holding in his hands, not a puppy, but a baby. Now what makes the small bird so greater a wrong than the butterfly? And what makes the puppy so greater a wrong than the small bird? And what makes the child such an even greater wrong than the puppy? The answer is, it's the increasing value of the creature involved. As the value of the creature increases, so the wrong increases as well. We would call doing that to a child murder. Now consider the significances of wrongs done to God Almighty himself. Listen to how God describes himself. Isaiah chapter 40, he says this, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand And marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. To whom will then you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by their number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is stronger in power, not one is missing. See, the Bible teaches God is the maker and sustainer of all that exists, infinite in power, infinite in might, infinite in wisdom and in goodness. Therefore, wrongs done to God are infinite in their cost. Because he is a being infinitely worthy of our love and adoration. And yet we run into a huge problem at this point. But Romans 3.23 teaches us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, this is the heartbeat of Christian forgiveness. Understanding that we have an incalculable debt before God Almighty. See, the problem with the illustration of the $13 billion debt is actually that the debt is too small. Our debt towards our maker is far larger because he is infinite in value and worth. To be forgiven of that debt is to experience life transformation. How could you ever hold something against another person if so much has been forgiven of you? This reality compels all that have experienced the forgiveness of God to forgive others. It is the only appropriate response to having received God's mercy. And that, friends, is the heartbeat of forgiveness. But not just that, finally, the third point we're going to look at today is, is not just the heartbeat of forgiveness, but finding forgiveness as well. See, if what I've been sharing so far is true, that we all carry an immeasurable debt towards God, Forgiveness really is our greatest need. And yet the crucial question this raises is, how can we experience this forgiveness? This is such an important question to ask because the truth is that for this servant that initially pleaded with the king for forgiveness, he did not in the end receive it. Uh, Read with me again verse 32 of our passage. It says, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So also, says Jesus, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, the king summons the unforgiving servant to himself and he rebukes him. He should have been transformed by the generosity that was shown to him. Instead, This servant has been acting like a king, threatening another servant of the king, and uh, refusing to forgive that servant's debt despite the king's forgiveness. See, the question I've been asking this week is, what was the ultimate failure of this unforgiving servant? Well, it wasn't simply that he failed to forgive his fellow servant. That would be to focus simply on the external, the outward fruit, the superficial. See, Jesus actually gives the real reason The real heart behind the issue in verse 35, he says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother, where? From your heart. See, his ultimate problem was that his heart was unaffected by the incredible mercy of the king towards him. There wasn't any real contrition or repentance. Perhaps he thought that he was entitled to the king's mercy. He was a high value asset to the kingdom. Perhaps he secretly questioned the king's goodness. He felt it was a fair reckoning for his service. Perhaps he questioned the king's management abilities. He felt the debt was unfairly accrued. Perhaps he simply was relieved to escape punishment, which he felt was too severe. The reasons for his coldness of heart are not told us. All we know is he remained unmoved by the king's mercy. More seeing an opportunity to, to expand his own personal wealth, he refuses to reciprocate by forgiving his fellow servant and demands immediate payment. See, the simple truth is you cannot truly believe you are the recipient of incredible mercy and remain unmoved. You know, our natural instinct, as people, receiving amazing mercy, I I would say is just to burst into tears. To be overcome with joy and thanksgiving and responding kind to others. The amazing reality is that the parable Jesus is telling these disciples is but a dim reflection of the mercy he would go on to extend to those who come to him. See, Jesus shares the story of a servant who is summoned by a king and seeks forgiveness only to go out and act like a king in the way he treats others. While Jesus is the king who comes to act as a servant to pay a debt that doesn't belong to him. Now, we've been talking this morning about forgiveness and how it involves being willing to take upon yourself someone else's cost, how it's a kind of voluntary suffering for someone else. And this is exactly the purpose for which Jesus came. God the Son himself came to pay our debt in full. Jesus puts it this way in Mark ten forty five. he says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The truth is that we owe an immeasurable debt to God for how we've treated Him. And we deserve to be thrown to the jailers. And yet God the Son came to give us an immeasurable gift to bear in His body the full cost of our sin that we might be forgiven. The message of the cross is that Jesus came to take upon Himself the just punishment for our sins that we might find forgiveness through trust in him. God poured out his just punishment for our wrongs upon the cross, and he cried, why have you forsaken me? And yet he stayed upon the cross. He bore the punishment in full and cried at the end, it is finished. So you cannot truly believe that you're a sinner in need of saving and see what Jesus has done and remain unmoved by it. To see God's heart in Jesus' willingness to suffer on the cross is to be transformed. It's to receive Him as your God and King and desire to rightly love and serve and follow His example and forgive others. You know, just as we end our time uh, here this morning together, I just want to pause and briefly reflect on just kind of two possible applications of this word, this story from Jesus this morning. The first is that If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, the cross of Jesus means that there is no place for unforgiveness. See, this is not to say that forgiveness is easy. In a broken world, it's a matter of time before you're you're wronged in a way that it will feel almost impossible to forgive. This is also not to say that you can simply flick a switch and forgive. I was talking to someone even last night. The truth is forgiveness is often a process. And it may involve a daily decision to trust God, to bear the cost and forgive each and every day for years at a time. And this doesn't mean ignoring sin, we've said. It often involves telling the truth about the wrong that has been done. Nevertheless, in light of the mercy shown to us in Christ, we must forgive. You know, Maybe you're here and you know that there is unforgiveness towards someone in your heart right now. Maybe you're here and you're a spouse, and you've been keeping a list of wrongs against them that you periodically bring up to remind them. Maybe you've got a friend at school who betrayed you or rejected you. Maybe a business partner who lied to you, someone who cheated on you. Maybe you've suffered abuse at some point. Maybe it's emotional, physical, maybe even sexual. Well, the right application of this message is to go to the Lord Jesus in prayer, to thank Him for the cross. And to ask him to help you to forgive. But secondly, you might not be here and you're a follower of Jesus. You might be here and you're new to Jesus. You're you're not a follower of Jesus. You're here as a guest. The right application of this message is to trust in Jesus and receive his forgiveness. And if that's you, uh, the the very next thing that that you need to do, I mean, we want to thank you so much for being here, but is to simply acknowledge that you have a debt to God that you can never repay to thank him for Jesus and put your trust in him. And we would love nothing more than to help you in that process. And so I just invite you, if if you're here as a guest and that is your story, talk to the person who brought you or come and visit us at the Welcome Center. We would love to help you get to know Jesus more. You know, Austin this morning talked about the word one-to-one. It's a wonderful way to encounter Jesus. Start a conversation today. We'd love to help you trust in him. I thought we'd best to close with a story. that really greatly sums up the things that we've been talking about. And it comes from uh, just a few years ago in the United States. It was in September of 2018 when Amber Geiger, a Dallas police officer, came home from work and entered an apartment, mistakenly thinking it was her own, when she saw a black man inside the apartment whom she shot and killed. It was Botham Jean, her unarmed neighbor, watching TV in his own home. Just after Geiger was sentenced in court to 10 years in prison, the victim's brother, Brandt, made a victim impact statement in the courtroom and then sealed his words with a gesture. He said, If you're truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. See, both Brandt and Botham were committed Christians. Brandt urged Geiger to turn to Jesus. He said, I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want for you. Brent went so far to say that he didn't want Geiger to face jail time for the 2018 shooting in the Dallas apartment complex where both Botham and she lived. He then pleaded with the judge to let him hug Geiger, his brother's killer, a request the judge granted. What a moving story. Would we find in Jesus... Not only the incredible forgiveness we need, but also the power to forgive. Join with me in praying as we end. Lord God, words cannot describe the incredible thankfulness we feel as we survey your wonderful cross. To think we, as your creatures, have wronged you so greatly, and yet you would be willing to suffer for us. Lord God, the truth is so often we find forgiveness incredibly hard, and yet we ask and pray by your grace, would you help us? Would you help us follow the example of our Lord Jesus and be willing to embrace the smaller costs? That others place upon us in order to, in an ever increasing way, reflect the wonderful cost you embraced upon the cross. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.